Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In part two, we pick up from part one and learn how WS is able to make an internal transition at his bulge bracket bank to get even closer to the actual trading, eventually becoming vice president on the high yield credit desk before another sudden turn of events would leave him out of the job for six months. Find out how he ended up at an even better bulge bracket after a half year hiatus, but this time in a research capacity and why he left after less than two years to finally join a hedge fund putting his ideas to work. Enjoy. So, you know, in my lunch breaks, I go down, I, um, I let myself onto the trading floor. Um, and I, I basically like cornered him and asked him, Hey, look, I'm, I'm really interested in the group. Can you tell me more about it? Um, basically went down, got said no a couple of times. There were a couple of times where he actually sat me down, talked to me for five, 10 minutes had to go back, but I kept this up for the better part of call it six months. Right. And I was at, I was at squeaky wheel that went in, I sent emails. Um, I followed up with like, before we even go there. So I love, I love the the story of the hustle, but tell me, how did you know this was like a good place to be for you? Because internally, you know, through my current role at the time, one of my friends, uh, one of the guys who worked in the internal credit department, who I became, you know, came to become like really good friends with. Yeah. He was telling me this guy's an all-star. Like go down and talk to him. Right. He very well known. He covers the space and he's like, you know, I rated number one, like multiple years. Yeah. Um, if you, if you want a true investing role, this is the guy you need to talk to. And so look, I trusted this guy and I told him, look, I will do anything that I, I can. And so, you know, he, he told me, look, he can make an introduction, but it's better if I just go myself and just show how hungry it, cause that, that's how he is. Right. Like people on the desk are, eat what you kill, right? Yeah. Eat what you kill, you go chase, you go hustle, be aggressive. They like that kind of personality. So that that's what I, that's what I did. And um, six months, it took me six months of just emails and talking and conversation. And then one day I heard, oh, this guy's leaving the bank. I'm like, oh my God, I just, my, my only contact there is, is gone. But then I get an email from him later that day. And he said, um, he had copied me and what was to be the next head of the group. And he said, Hey, look, this guy's been keeping in touch with me over the last six months. He's really hungry. Um, we're looking to hire a couple more people cause we're building out the team. Talk to this guy first cause he's shown the most interest. So it paid off, right? Yeah. The IRR on six months. Yeah. That was pretty, pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, pretty damn good in my opinion. So, you know, 
at that point, at that point, you know, the, the leverage loan structuring stuff, that's more of like a, that was kind of more of a front office gig, right? Considered a, or. It was, it, it was considered, yeah, it was considered uh, kind of front office because, I mean, it depended on, because the, the, the fees that you generated were your underwriting fees, right? If, right. Whether it's committed or if. But you were making like a lot more than your first go around. Uh, oh yeah. You were sure. making what, like 140 or 30 all in or 160? I mean, but this, I mean, this was. This was a while. I know this is still bad bonuses coming out of this. Uh, yeah. I was probably making about 130, 140 all in, I think. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So, and, you know, I was an associate at the time and, um, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, it it was considered a front office role, but it wasn't paid like a front office role because the fees for underwriting these loans went to capital markets. Cap markets, leverage leverage finance capital markets was a an actual separate group. Got it. And so they pocketed, you know, the two two and a half percent fees on you know the bonds and the loans. We you know got a sort of cut of that um, just because we helped out with the the structuring and the legalese and all that kind of stuff. So. Right. It was more front office in nature. Yeah, it was kind of front office. So I, I knew I wasn't entirely there. Yeah. So was this next place front office? This next place, still at the same firm. Yeah. Um, was it was definitely front office. So it was I was a desk analyst. Um, eventually got the job because I interviewed. Um, you know, I got put sort of through the meat grinder and you know, through multiple rounds, meeting people, case studies, everything, just to make sure, because I still had a pretty unconventional background, right? Yeah. You're a musician, you're in structuring, you were, you did leverage finance for about a year, but have you ever been on a trading floor before, right? So this is, this is your, this is you trying to get closer to actually making investment decisions. Yeah. Or at the very, not, not necessarily controlling PL, but at least giving advice on the markets or on a specific market. Correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So as a desk analyst, again, I mean, this is post GFC. And so, yeah, for the listeners to understand, like, yeah, what, what this meant, it'd be great to, yeah. Can you tell them what does a desk analyst do? Yeah. Yeah. So a desk analyst, um, essentially you are typically broken up into different industries or by situation. So, um, at this particular bank, um, you have a team of call it 10, 15 people. There are pods and silos covering different, um, industries. And your job was to essentially know every single name in that industry. Mm -hmm. um, you were expected to have a, a working model. You were expected to, um, you know, have regular conversations with management, um, and also have sort of synthesizing all this information. You had to pr propose trade ideas, right? And you were the source of information for a lot of buy side folks. You were their point of contact. In that, if somebody on uh, on the buy side, such as a hedge fund. They wanted to get up to speed really quickly on a name. They would call up their sell side counterpart, which is usually a desk analyst, and they would say, "Hey, I'm looking at company X Y Z. My sale, your sales guy told me that you covered this name. Can you run me through the situation? Can you run me through some of the high level numbers?" And it's your job to be able to have that at your fingertips and be able to do that because it, it, that's how you establish relationship. That's how you um, get the client to trade through your trader, and that's revenue for the firm, right? And so. Okay. You had to be the first line of offense. You had to be the first line of information for, for your clients. And these are really big clients. It was like Lord Abbott, BlackRock, Oak Tree, you know, Aurelius. You, you better know what you're talking about. And so when I first started, obviously, I was not having those conversations. I was shadowing my boss, who was the head of the group at the time. He hired me. Um, I was on every single phone call he was on with clients. So 
you know, my job at the time was to get up the learning curve. And what that meant was, look, you got to learn two different sectors. You have to learn industrials and you have to learn metals and mining, right? And, you know, this is right around when commodities crashed in 2015, right? When like, you know, Freeport bonds went from like par to like 30 cents, right? So, I mean, that is one of the major copper producers in the world. And you saw overnight copper, you know, prices tank. You saw iron ore prices tank. All of the metals and mining names in the, in the space basically tank. But to answer your question kind of full circle, um, the desk analyst is responsible for understanding um, the industry, understanding the, the trends within that industry, and also understanding specific metrics for, um, you know, relevant top of mind names, right? So if you're covering tech, you would need to know, you know, uh, NVIDIA, you need, if you cover me media, you would need to know, like, you know, um, I don't know, like ALL Time Warner at the time, right? So on, like you have to be the point of contact for, for, the, uh, for the, for the buy side. Really interesting. Okay. So you're, you get this dream job, you're getting closer, you're sitting in all, all these phone calls. How fast are you getting up the learning curve? Or was it like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Because there's such chaos given the time. Well, you, you've seen that picture of the, the dog, right? Sitting in the fire. This is, this is fine dog. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> this is fine dog. Yeah. It was, it was like that for about six months. Um, and it, it really was a fire drill because that's the first time you learn and it's a scary process, but this is the first time you learn what earning seasons is like entails, right? And so you're, when you're in an investing role that is plugged, that is live with the market, mm-hmm. earnings become incredibly important because your trader is trading on information that is like really relevant for that particular company or competitors within that space. And so your job in addition to being on top of all your names and modeling and, you know, understanding and learning about the industry, you had to be essentially a news jockey. Your job um, was to pay attention to every single headline that could be material to your name or the competitor's names or affected the space. And it is your job to let the trader know because there's nothing more scary than a trader getting picked off because they didn't know the information, right? And so, what I mean by picked off for those you probably don't know is um, let's just say that um, Google reported some headline that said, you know, they experienced a massive cyber hack and, you know, half of their database got hacked and compromised and your trader owns a bunch of, um, you know, Google bonds. And so if the market is as efficient as it is, and it's pretty efficient, there will be traders who are going to be selling, right? bonds on this news because it's a it's a negative headline and if you're not aware of that piece of news and you told your trader i like google your trader is going to suddenly see oh these bonds are now being offered five points lower oh that's a steal i'm going to buy this they get they do step in front of that train they get completely crushed because they didn't know this piece of news or something really positive happened on the on the flip side you know they sold a bond that they should have held on to, right? right? They get picked off by the market. There's nothing more scary than a really angry trader coming at you <laughs> because you didn't like follow or be aware of the news, right? And so that was the that was the fun and the scary part of the role. I mean, you actually saw and had a you, you had a finger on a pulse of the market every every single day, right? And it's not just stuff that was going on in your space or your names. It was 
the market itself, right? Because you had to be looking at headlines and thinking, is that going to, is that going to hurt or help? Exactly. Any of my names. Yeah. And what you learn really quickly is that just dropping a headline into a chat room is not enough. What you needed to learn quickly and do well is what is the news? Digest it. What does it mean? And then lastly, the most important part is what does this do to our position, right? Mm-hmm. If it's, you have to figure out really quickly, is it positive or negative news? And if it's positive or negative news, what should you do, right? Ignore it by, by the dip or by the fall, right? The drop, get or out. should we sell, right? Get out, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but the thinking is that before the trader ever puts on the position, you thought of theoretically all these scenarios and all these risks. And if they happen, you have a contingency plan in place. So have you, were you just like on the phone all the time, like with traders, like all day? Well, my trader sat, you know, two rows behind me. So you're just like right there. He's screaming at you. You're telling him like, he's screaming at me. Well, at the time he's screaming at my boss because he was handling all the calls. But as you get more into the role and you understood like there's a, there's a subtlety in terms of the news release, right? Like a news isn't binary. It's like 10 bad or zero good, right? Yeah. It's like, it could be a seven on a scale of bad or a two on a scale of bad. And then your, your job is to say, okay, I have, I've digested and processed this news. This means, you know, bonds are going to widen by 20, you know, quarter, quarter basis points, right? Like, um, or sorry, 25 basis points or 50 basis points, or it's going to gap out to like, you know, 200 basis points for, for some reason, you have to be able to communicate the news in a way that the trader is going to understand. And so the traders trading, like, it sounds like flow and you're trying to make, give them a heads up of how wide they need to make their, their bids not to get like lose money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you're basically, you're telling them, you're telling them like, how crazy is this new, like how uncertain. Is this? Yeah, you you tell them the the severity of the news, whether it's positive or negative. Yeah, it's their job to manage the risk, right? They because, I mean, post greater financial crisis, we all know that prop trading, like, went away supposedly, right? It's going away, but your job as a as a broker dealer is that you're creating liquidity for the market, right? right? And so you're you're buying and selling constantly. And your, your, your trader cannot get caught off sides because they don't understand the risk or what's going on fully with that name. Yeah. And so it's, it's just so important for you to really know each name and know the drivers and know when a piece of news comes out that that first person you have to tell is the trader, right? So um, that got beat into submission into me the first couple of weeks. Like, do not miss news. Um, and I've seen it play out really badly with other people. So, but it, you know, to, to like a lot of people, that's like, it's really scary, right? But I loved it. I loved how crazy it was, people shouting at each other. You you know, it is hard to concentrate on a trading floor because like the sales guys are always on phone calls all day. Yeah. The traders are like throwing a football. Sometimes they'll hit you. Like, but like, and you're, you're there in this massive, like just chaos, massive chaos and like mayhem. And you're trying to read a 10Q or a 10K. <laughs> like you end up reading the same line 10 times because like yeah. you can't stop focusing on the guy behind you, the sales guy talking about his night out at like, you know, like at Tau, right? You know, I've read this line 10 times. I have no idea. So you give up. You kind of just manage your workload. And after the market shuts down at four o'clock, you're like, okay, now I'm going to get to sort of the, the work I actually was supposed to do during the day. Yeah. But I think, I think in this role, it was, it's really important to understand that this was this is where I really formed my love and appreciation for credit, right? I know that equity equity markets are exciting. They have obviously juicier returns than credit, 
but in within high yield and distress, it had very equity-like characteristics, but it had a very set parameter in which these instruments function, right? And so your risk is theoretically capped at, you know, for the tenor of the of the instrument, right? It's nice to it's nice to know that in five years I'm gonna get paid back with interest or I'm gonna have a donut at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. For, for equity, it's like you have to consistently always be a permeable, permeable. Um, and you have to believe in in this company. And that that stock has no duration. It goes on forever until it goes bankrupt. Right. So for for credit, I love the parameters. I love the legalese that binds this. And I think with my previous position and the desk analyst shop, this is where I started to figure out, oh, this is a really cool space to be in. High yield, distress, you know. Yeah, you were there for a while. You were there for a while. And this is this is where I ultimately found a home um, and I, I loved it. And unfortunately at the time there was a CEO change and like half the group in my, half the people in my group got laid off. They called it reduction in force. And so I was unfortunate at the time I, was, I just had got, gotten promoted to, to VP. Yeah. I never gotten laid off before in my life. And I was like, oh man, this, this sucks. Um, and then um, there was like a six month gap where I was like, you know, I could have easily gone back to something, but I took six months off and I, I traveled, um, around the world. I was like, you know, I've, I've built enough savings. And I'll tell you that summer was probably, I'll, I'll go and, you know, at the end of my life, I'll say that's probably one of the top five things I did in my life. It was probably one of the most fun things I had done. So six months, meaning just traveling. Where did you go? Uh, I went all around Europe. Yeah. Um, pretty much like, like England, France, Germany, uh, Italy, um, Poland, Hungary, Serbia, Lithuania, Sweden, Finland. Wow. Yeah, I went through all that. And then I did Asia for a bit. Um, and it was it was an incredible time because like up until that point, I had not really taken a vacation. So probably it was like five years since I no, it was it was about seven years and I had not really taken a vacation because I'd have been job like job to job and yeah, yeah, yeah really just trying to build my brand and my skills. And it was a nice sigh of relief at the time. I knew after six months when I came back, I had to explain that. And there was no, there was no way that you can like talk yourself out of taking six months off, right? So, yeah, you know, you, 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 I, I don't, I don't remember what I said, but. Um, well, probably I didn't have a vacation for seven years. And I was resetting. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, mean, I was resetting and I, I think it was probably another version of like, hey, I want to work at your company. But um, ultimately, I was able to come back from the trip and, you know, there was a lot of life ref reflection on uh, on the way. But I think ultimately what I thought was, look, I, I, I'm really interested in credit. I really love this product. And I think it's going to be around for a while because there are always going to be company, companies that need capital. There will always be companies that have a good business model, but a terrible balance sheet and they need help. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, I was ready to come back after six months. The next job was, was, um, I don't know if it was like a transition job or it was just the, the brand name it was another bulge bracket firm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I became a publishing analyst and it was, it was, it was good in the sense that I understood uh, a different sector, but ultimately I knew that I had taken a step away from the PL, right? I was a publishing analyst. Credit credit research, basically, credit research. Correct. Yeah. And I, I wasn't close to the, the PL anymore, right? And so there was a separate desk analyst group at the firm. 
And I knew, having been in the role, that you know they're the ones talking to most of the investors. They're the ones who saw the flow. Um, and, and, and you're really just there to write your thoughts on a piece of paper. Again, I'm not, I'm not trivializing the practice. I knew it wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you did it, but you did it. Was it because a uh, good brand, you know, both bracket name and because it just, you didn't have other options coming back from that long, uh, sabbatical, we'll call it. No, I actually had like two other, um, opportunities at the time. I ultimately went with this one because, um, you know, it was, it was a good name and there were good people who worked in the group who yeah. ultimately after six months, a lot of them left. Um, but I, I got, I got really good at writing at this point. Right. Yeah. And so the, the one thing, if I had to gripe about one thing, it was the amount of time that passed between the formation and the idea and then putting the risk on. Yeah. Because, yeah. because with any publishing role, you have to go through um, spot checks, you have to go through compliance you have to go through like publishing and there's a whole period of that, right? Like there, there would be one or two days lag between, you know, when you submitted it for publishing until it got published. And so, and, and then like, you know, walk that back maybe two or three weeks when you start looking at a name, do work. Um, it, it's a very long process. And by the time you get to the end, maybe the trade's gone. Right. And so um, I knew again that, I love the approach of putting risk on. You did work, you were iterative on the desk as a desk analyst. You put the risk on, get kicked around it for a little bit and understand how it traded. And as you continue to underwrite and refine your theses, you can either sell out of it or you scaled up, right? Yeah. Whereas in a publishing role, it was just like, oh man, this is a long process. I feel so further removed from what I really like doing, which is, you know, markets and-, and Why didn't you go back to like a similar desk? It, does sound, it sounds like you had found a- was it just, hey, I'm going to try this new thing. I want to become a good writer and there's good people working at this place? Yeah, I mean, it was really the brand. Um, yeah. And it was, I mean, to your point, it was, you know, six months and, you know, you kind of had to get into the swing of things again. And yeah. I covered a really cool sector um, yeah. at the time. It was it was blowing up because, you know, everything in the space basically started trading like it was the distressed asset. And so, you know, I had cover metals and mining in 2015 and 2016, this particular uh, sector also imploded. Um, and it started to get me expanding into distressed investing, talking about valuations, thinking about bankruptcies. Um, and that I think was an experience I, I was really thankful for because the next role allowed me to really start to exercise some of these skills that I've accumulated along the way. Yeah. Um, I knew that ultimately what um, ultimately led me to leave the sell side was you don't really um, take risk at a sales site bank, right? Because of risk requirements, it's not your job to do that. Your job is to be the aggregator of information and then preserve and build relationship with the clients. So I knew the only way that you can actually put your money where your mouth is, is actually to go and work at a hedge fund transition to the buy side. And at the time, um, there was a really cool opportunity that came up and I took it, a uh, small hedge fund, I, you know, I had been at large institutions for a very long time. I didn't want to, you know, kind of jump through all the, the the red tape again, all the bureaucracy. I wanted to find a name, find an idea, do enough work. Let's put it on and let's see if it goes up or down. Right. And so yeah. um, it was, it was a really cool, cool group. Um, I learned a lot. I was able to put my modeling, my, my legalese, my trading, all the, all those things that I have synthesized over the years, yeah. really yeah. For, for the first time into practice. 
Um, and I'm thankful again. How did it feel? It was exciting, but scary or fun. Look again, the, the, this is fine dog came around again. And I was like, well, this is my first time in the space and you know, I've never been on the buy side, but, um, I quickly realized that this, this is where I wanted to be, right? If you gain conviction, and this is something that I don't know if folks are, are familiar with, but conviction is, is something that you'll probably hear a lot in, in the business is that you, you come up with an idea, you iterate, reiterate, iterate, underwrite, go through the risks. You get to a point where you know that you can, you can size this position up to 10%, 15%, where it's a material position within your firm. Yeah. Conviction is that you have the confidence in the net, uh, amount of work that you've done to be able to take this level of risk, right? And so when we talk to folks on the buy side or the sell side, oftentimes we will ask them like, what's your conviction level for this, right? And a lot of people will say, well, my conviction is you know, six out of 10 because X, Y, and Z variables, I have no idea how to underwrite. I have no information on this. So they'll say, okay, this is kind of like a yo bet or this is something I have a lot of conviction in because I've looked into all these other supplementary data points yeah. to, to support my view. Um, and that goes a long way, right? And so when you start to, when you start to, you know, develop this muscle memory, when you start to educate the street on some of your own ideas, um, on your conviction level, and if, you know, as long as these, these ideas, more of them work out than don't, then you really start to build up this really good network of, buy side guys that you talk to that you can trade ideas with you can get like first dibs on ideas um that is the networking the rolodex that you build over your career and so um you know at this at the shop i was able to to really you know put my money where my mouth is i you know i love modeling i think that is the only thing that can i can hang my hat on can you tell can you explain like the types of trades you're putting on so like uh let's say there's distressed, I don't know, distressed uh, retailer. And you're like, Hey, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy the senior debt. I'm going to sell a sub or vice versa because X, Y, Z. And like, so you, you were modeling out like the cash flows and the whatever, all that stuff. To, how are you doing this? So there was, um, so there was a retailer that I was looking at during this, um, this apocalypse period. And they had five different uh, business segments. So it's a retailer that have five different clothing lines. Yep. You know, it's like a men's, or there's a women's, there's a children's. And, you know, retail is notoriously hard to value because it's it's like, it's not a factory that's producing widgets, right? It's like a piece of clothing that could go out of style tomorrow, right? Yeah. So yeah. so the value of that actually is is very, very hard to, to actually pinpoint. But, you know, what I love to do is, um, you know, there are many different ways that you arrive at valuation. Um, Sort of the lazy way that a lot of people on the street that I found were doing was simply trying to figure out what a future EBITDA was or stable EBITDA was going to be, slapping a multiple range on it and just saying, hey, look, this business is worth anywhere from a couple hundred million to whatever billion, right? And that kind of approach sometimes, it works. It works sometimes. But that can really get you into trouble when something, like when things start selling off, the market goes- Distress, when way. you're looking at distress credit, yeah, especially. Right, because the multiples work until they don't. Right, multiples contract. They Why change. Why are you trading at two x? Even though it's like this was supposed to be a six x business, now it's trading at two x. Like, and then when, yeah. when you don't have the work to back it up, suddenly you're you're like, oh god, what is my valuation based on? Right? Yeah. And you don't want to tell your PMO. It's just a valuation. But what I did was, you know, I 
I modeled out historically, and I love to take, if these companies went back to the greater financial crisis, I'd model them all the way back to 2009. I know that's super draconian. People don't do that often, but I want to look at how they weather very historical periods of stress, yeah. right? 2009 was something special. Um, you saw a massive inflationary period in 2011. You saw the commodity crisis in 2015. You saw the taper tantrum in 2018, right? You look at how some of these things traded. Um, and so I, I, I had to, I'm a very visual person, so I need to have a working model in front of me. And I build fast, right? These After years of just playing around with Excel, I got really good at building models really quickly, right? Three statement models, LBO, valuation, waterfalls, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So for this particular retail name, I broke it down into all the different segments. I figured out the cash flows um, for every single one of these segments. The one key thing that I had to determine was, this is a retailer that was losing um, market share. And so it was... It had declining sales. It had declining EBITDA. It had, you know, ballooning expenses. And so, you know, it's a melting ice cube for all intents and purposes. And so yep. you have to figure out what is going to be the stable state of this melting ice cube, right? Because it's not going to melt forever. Yeah. It's like saying, you know, if you're trying to buy a newspaper company, newspapers aren't going to go away. They're going to shrink to a sort of a small level. It's going to be much smaller than it is today, but they're not going to go away, right? People will still enjoy reading newspapers. At least not for a long, long time. <laughs> Not for a long time. It's a very, very long tail, but you have to have an idea of like how bad can it actually get. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's the valuation approach where you're, you know, you're slapping a multiple on it. You're looking at other different retail companies in the space, right? So you're looking at apparel, like women's apparel, children's yeah. apparel. You're looking at their margins. You're looking at their top line growth. You're looking at the unlevered free cash flow, lever free cash flow yields looking at market cap if they're public, like looking at if they're, you know, their capital t- cap, cap structure is upside down. And then you figure out sort of the route valves, like, okay, where does this particular name slot against everybody else, right? On a leverage free cash flow basis, on a valuation perspective, on a leverage debt to cap ratio, like all these different things. And you say, okay, crappy business, lower margins, upside down capital structure, you know, names in the space are trading five to six times. This is probably a three to four times, right? Yeah. But then you always have to haircut even more that because, you know, when, when something goes to stress or they go bankrupt, multiples or prices will trade passive where you usually think they will, right? It's, it's not enough to say I, if this thing goes bankrupt and I've done the valuation and the waterfall, this bond should trade a 40. I will bet you 99 times out of 100 that bonds trace past 40 into the 30s and 20s and it bounces back up, right? That's just how things work. Yeah. Because there's a real fear when everybody's piling out the door trying to sell it, right? They will oversell. It's going to go to the pennies in the dollar. And, and yeah. yeah. And, then, and then it's like the marginal buyer, like the support level are the hedge funds, the guys who've done the work and say, well, this is completely oversold. I know this is worth 40 cents. Yeah. It's a bargain. I can hundred. I can 2X my money by at 20. And I can leverage it up. I can lever it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you can then you can lever it up and you can carve it off cover it off as you want. So yeah. I mean like going back to the retail example, I had to figure out every single, you know, number one, figure out the the, the space. I had to understand basically operating metrics and evaluation metrics for every single one of these companies. Um, and then I had to look the look at a cash flow. So you did DCF, get it, garbage in, garbage out, but you have to have a method to the madness, right? Yeah. DCF, you have to look at free cash flow, you have to look at um, relative, um, you know, relval, are there better plays out there, right? This is, this is cheap, but is there something cheaper in the market, right? Right. On a, on a yield, yield to maturity or yield to call or yield to worst basis. So, um, you know, 
as part of that analysis, I had to go through the entire, all the different legal documents, credit agreements, indentures for all the various parts and instruments in the capital structure, looking at RP capacity, looking at secure um, um, capacity, debt capacity. So in these scenarios, once you've read all the information, you've spread all the numbers, you've looked at all the competitors, the scenarios that you underwrite are essentially if this thing went bankrupt, what caused, what tips it into bankruptcy, right? Like, what is this liquidity? How much is drawn under the revolver? How much availability does it have left, right? And if they're burning cash, how many months or quarters do they have until their cash runs out, right? Um, and so once you get a sense of what that runway looks like, then you look at the different instruments within the capital structure and you say, okay, liquidity runs out in six months. This instrument has a maturity that is in two years. You know, and like, then you have to ask yourself, is this instrument secure at the top of the capital structure or is it junior, right? You have to get a, a sense of like, you have to get a bearing of where you are, a sense of where you are in the capital structure. So once you have all this planned out, then you have to look at the documents. You have to look at secure debt capacity. You have to look at RP capacity. You have to look at trap doors, meaning if the company wanted to siphon value out from one of the segments and then dividend it back to management, if the documents allow it, they may do it, right? Especially if there's a sponsor involved. So these are all the things that you need to be aware of that you need to build into your worst case scenario. If X, Y, Z, you know, every single one of these bad things happen, what is that pool of value that I actually have that I can claim on? And how senior am I in that waterfall to be able to claim, right? And so that was really interesting in, 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 from the sense that like, you know, this is a valuation exercise. This is also an exercise in understanding legalese. What I wanted to really get a better handle on because at the time I had never been through a process, never been through a bankruptcy process, right? And those things get really messy. Yeah. Um, that was that became later, you know, my subsequent role, I was able to, to get more experience there. But at the time, that was the progression of the analysis that needed to be done. And it didn't happen, happen overnight. These were things that weeks, weeks you're yeah, right. Takes weeks. You have the model build initially, you understand the um, you know, the drivers countless number of calls with like sell site analysts with buy site analysts there's a lot of education that goes on because people will have very different views from you they'll ask you for your view in return it's like a quid pro quo type of way they'll give you your view only if you you know offer something valuable to too right so but for them it's another data point in terms of how the market the general market is thinking about this thing so yeah, yeah. yeah. um so then you get a good, very very good sense of like okay this is my view, but I also need to understand in the event of an event, or if there's an earnings report, what is everybody else expecting? Yeah. Then that's going to dictate um, how that security or that instrument trades right. on that news. So um, again, I, I benefited from all these, I'm like a Frankenstein's monster, all these patched up different parts from all these different roles. Yeah, I'm thinking like you're like the background you had is probably a really good one um, for being an actual investor at a hedge fund. So yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I would be. I'm thankful for that. I would say a lot of folks sometimes had, you know, at, especially at large shops, they will be like the analysts for a name or a situation or an industry, and all you focus on are just the numbers. And you have like internal counsel or legal team to be like, okay, just look at that. Go look at what holes there are in this document, tell me where I can get hurt. I think that's nice, I mean, but 
you know, if you don't have lawyers at your disposal or you don't have, a, you know, counsel on retainer, you need to be able to do this quick, you know, stuff quickly, right? Yeah. So um, I, it was definitely a very, very helpful skill to learn along the way. And so you're there for a couple of years as this in this kind of distressed role, high yield role. And yep. what was what was it like? Was it a roller coaster? You did really well. You didn't do well. What happened? Well, I did. I mean, I did well. I was a top PL generator. Um, you know, first year, I think second year too. Um, some cool trades that we did. Again, it was a very flexible mandate. So, you know, we looked at credit long short. We looked at equity long shorts. We looked at hedges. We looked at cap arbs. Um, you know, we also did merger arb as well. It's something I was I never had any experience with. But you know, there's you know John Paulson and like all these big guys. They made their careers on like merger arb, right? And so um, that was something that was so cool. I was like, man, this is awesome. Like I'm not only am I working in a product or a space that I'm, you know, I, I, I get a lot of excitement from, but it's like, I'm also looking at equities for the first time. I'm also yeah, you're looking at, looking at a bunch of stuff. Sounds cool. But why, why, why leave? They just didn't raise money. You know, it was, it was hard. It's, it's hard to, I mean, I love the team. I really love the team. Yeah. Like, it was such a solid group of guys, but you know, I mean, at the at the risk of shooting myself in the leg or uh, in the foot, I mean, I'm a survivor. I want to go where I can best perform, yeah. have the best resources available, and I want success for myself as well, right? And to help people around me. And so, when you say they weren't able to raise money, I mean, they had money, right? You're you're trading, and so like, what? Why not just continue? And like, you're doing really well in the PNL. So like, what do you mean they weren't able to raise more, like a bigger fund or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the AUM was not. It wasn't huge. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't scaling as I wanted, and it's 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 hard to it's run it's hard to run a credit platform, yeah, and you know a distressed platform if you if you choose to to invest in those products with. I mean, I, I still believe it's hard to run any type of credit platform if you're under a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, you can you can get away with it maybe at five hundred or seven fifty. Why is that? You can't you can't plan enough names or something, or like, or just you're. It's just you don't have enough scale sometimes to take big positions, right? Because of the stress, you need to be able to. If you want to make two, three x, four x, five x your money, I mean, sometimes you. I mean, I get to this later, but like sometimes you need to be able to take entire tranches down, or you need to hmm. be able to have capital to deploy really quickly. Yeah. Um, you also, I mean larger firms with big AUMs, they get the first look at a lot of these opportunities, right? Whether it's from a primary perspective or from a secondary perspective, right? Yeah. Like like cap markets head at, you know, UBS yeah. is not going to know small fund ABC with 25 million. Again, I'm not saying this was the AUM at the time. I'm, I'm just exaggerating. Yeah, yeah, 25, 50 25 million, million AUM. 25. Like, <laughs> you're not, that's, that's like, that's like, I think that's like BlackRock's minimum size. There's like yeah. small, like for primary issuance, like, you know, they need to have at least 25 or 50 million bucks, right? So um, it's hard to run a platform because you you get you get overlooked on the primary side sometimes because your order size is just not big enough. Right. Um, or you're um, like what sell side banks really want is for you to trade with them, right? And so for a small shop, you're getting just death by a thousand because you're getting killed on bid ask spreads over and over again, right? And you can't, you can't make a lot of that money back if you're trading that often. Again, I mean, this, maybe I'm confounding some factors here, but yeah. there are shops that are very trading oriented, like a millennium. Yeah. Um, 
or Exodus, and then there are like the buying holes, like very activist plays, like, you know, the Elliots of the group, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, like point being, I think, I think the writing on the wall right now, especially with regulation, with, um, you know, administration in terms of oversight, is that it's it's a land grab in terms of assets. You, you saw two years ago, there were people buying up trading brokerages like TD Securities. I think it was TD Securities, I can't, or Meritrade, I think. Yeah. Um, people are looking to buy clients and they're doing so through buying AUM, right? And so funds that have the largest amount of AUM can command um, the largest positions. They can, they can take, um, you know, uh, bets that don't require you to circle outside capital, right? You can just do it yourself. You can also be the anchor order and build that relationship with sell side banks, right? Um, and, and it's just, there's, there are things that are benefits that come with like scale and size. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you, but that's why you, I left. That's why I left. So that's why you left. You said, you know, this isn't, you know, we're not able, we're getting kind of death by a thousand cuts. Like you said, even though you're having good ideas and you're, yeah, it was you fun. Even on the right side of a lot of these trades, you're still thinking like, wow, this is we're rowing upstream here uh, without the scale. So what did you, did you take, you didn't take a break this time. So what, what was the thought process? You, I'm going to do something myself. I'm going to go partner with other people. What was the thought process? Well, so next, the next shop um, uh, I joined because I was, um, you know, to put it simply, I was giving, I was going to be given a lot of ownership in my positions. I was able to just be very senior and come up with the ideas under right. And the economics were just a lot better. Yeah. Um, it was you talk about not necessarily how much you were making, but like the economics of like being, you know, the, the amount of care you get at like a, a, as like a junior person and then like how it can just change dramatically. Yeah. So my, my understanding, and again, um, some people are very hesitant to say, to, to say, so I'm not, very sure about what it's like at other firms but from my understanding um you know by this point i was like a senior senior analyst level analyst um and typically speaking at large it depends on where you are in the culture right so you know if you're at an apollo or you're at a tpg unless you're unless you're like an md or you're an actual partner you're most likely not going to get carried right yeah, yeah. um you know, as a senior analyst, you could potentially be gro grooming yourself or they could be grooming you for PM role, mm -hmm. right? Because you have covered many different sectors in the past. You've demonstrated and excelled in an ability to, to be able to manage risk and understand credit analysis. Um, you have an ex like experience for appreciating macro and how that drives your sector, right? That's the pathway from a senior analyst to a PM role, right? Right. Um, and so PMs, uh, partners, usually at firms, they they usually will get some amount of points. My understanding is depending on where you are, it's anywhere from one to five points, right? One to 5%, but 5% is a lot, right? Yeah. 5%, I can't imagine if you're at, you know, TPG, you're getting like five or 10 points, right? Like there's too many partners. <laughs> there are too many partners or a lot of mouths to feed. You're probably getting half a point or a quarter point or something. I'm guessing at this point. Yeah. yeah. But, and that, but that's part of the, the appeal of joining a smaller shop is that you, you get in at the ground floor, you actually build. And there you're getting like what? 10 points. Some places can give you 10 points. Some other places give you five points. Again, it's, it, maybe because it you're, you're not the founding not necessarily the founding, but they're bringing you in as a part at a partner level. They're kind of 
still keeping most of the care themselves probably but yes yeah i mean yeah. Par- partners will keep no less than 75 to 80 percent of the like the economics right like and it also depends on you know whether you take seed funding so if you get seed funding then they'll ask for you know two to three points here and there and then you have um, you know, other investors that probably want ownership. And if you're desperate to raise money, then they could e- extract their pound of flesh in the form of points as well. But I mean, 10 points, I mean, it, that, as at a small place, I don't know. I mean, that seems pretty high to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would say probably, I, you would know better than I would. I would say like two to five points is if you were to get points, that's probably what you would be given. And that's if they're bringing you at like the partner level or even director level or something like that. Yeah. Correct, correct. And, and at this most recent place, I was promoted to partner and I had an economic stake in it. And so um, what was cool about the setup here is on top of the actual points that you got, you, um, you know, for any sidecar or any co-investments, you had a claim on the, the P&L there as well, right? Like a sizable portion. So you can, you can claim up to like X percentage of the P&L that you made. So let's just say a position made you you know, netted you $10 million post fees, right? Um, you could get X percentage of, of, of that P&L. Can you share how, what your best year was either at the previous place or this year? <laughs> um, you can give a range, you can give a range or. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll just, I'll just say it's. Multiple seven figures? Yeah, it's, mul- it's multiples of my, it's multiples of my base salary. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you. But, it, it, but again, this is not something I, I want to make it clear that this is not something that people should expect when they join a fund. Yeah, right? Listeners just kill me if I don't ask. They always are like, why didn't you ask me what you made? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, PMs at large shops will make 5 million up, right? Like upwards right. of three to $5 million. And, you know, you know, for senior analysts or MDs, you can very easily see yourself over a million dollars, right? Yeah. Depending on the shop, but there are places where as a senior analyst or as a principal or MD, like, you know, you're all in, I don't know, five, like 750 to a million probably. Yeah. I think the market right now is probably more 500 to 750 um, for like, you know, senior analyst roles. So, um, but I would say um, people shouldn't expect um, points and you, you kind of have to read the, the room a little bit, do your research, talk to other people at the firm who are senior. Um, don't go in there with like you know a bazooka and demand like you want five points right like understand you know you you should you should present a uh you know an argument but you know ultimately it's up to the firm right so but yeah i mean i i would say um that is a very important question that you should definitely ask do not feel shy about asking it um you know and and, and tell them usually what you expect in fact, I think most places, when they ask you for your salary, you're not supposed to tell them, especially if you're in New York State. So you can give them a sense of like, like a way that I like to get around giving my number is I ask them what the market rate is, right? Yeah. Have them validate it. And then I'll just say, okay, that seems fair and reasonable rather than like telling them what I got paid. So um, for folks who are interviewing out there, you can ask, you know, ask and put them on the spot, right? They can't double dare, double, triple, triple dare you again, right? Like you double dare them and stop there, have them answer the question. And that gives you a sense of like, okay, this is where the market is. This seems about fair. Yeah. And so do you typically like, um, if they come in a little low or a little light, would you suggest kind of coming in a little higher and say, well, you know, I was thinking more on this range? Yeah. I mean, I could, you know, I'll sometimes I'll, 
it, it depends on who I'm talking to. Yeah, because you've jumped enough places now that you've had to deal have this conversation several times. Yeah, yeah. I have this I've had this conversation enough times to have a sense of what the street is paying. Yeah. So, um, if, if they were to, you know, communicate a, a number that was a little lower than expected, um, you know, I'm not going to outright reject it. I'll just say, oh, okay, that that's interesting. I've heard from other places that you know the all in comp last year for x y and z shop for this senior level was this right is, right so is, is there a reason like you know is there like back back loaded pay or like you just have to kind of put in your first year i, I like try to make it a more more of a dialogue yeah rather than be like oh, this this is bad right so i try i try to make them feel comfortable in that awkwardness so <laughs> well i've been holding you for a long time um so i just want to say first off thank you for sharing your story super interesting um and obviously very knowledgeable, obviously very, uh, you've had a very long and successful career. Thank you. Hopefully it'll keep going. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I just wanted to say, yeah, I mean, um, just to give you an opportunity before we call the pod, just any other kind of final words of wisdom, kind of looking back at your career, you know, with all the twists and turns so far. Um, like what I would tell myself. Yeah. Like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I buy Bitcoin before is over a hundred bucks, you know? <laughs> that's an easy one yeah that's an easy one but you know i'm you got high, kind of half joking we're not not half joking i mean you hit on it earlier with networking but you know anything else slightly less obvious um i would tell my i would i would say you know start to develop your gut feeling and start to trust yourself obviously there has to be a basis in that but i, I found a lot of decisions i've made along the way have have been you know listening to my gut right and I've always ended up in a place that was better than where where I was before, and I it, it, it's it's a function of me having a, a very clear sense of where I want to be and like the home I want to create for myself. So invest in that that sense of that that gut feeling that you have and learn to trust it because you're going to need it when you're trading and when you're working in in that type of role. I mean, the last thing I would say is like, look, if you have money, start investing young. You know, start to experiment with money understand how the market trades, you're going to lose some money, but you know, it's better that you start to, you know, start out with a small pile than lose, you know, $400 million for a trade at a hedge fund. So not, not, not what I did, but um, yeah, learn to invest quickly um, and young and then, you know, buy Bitcoin under a hundred dollars. One there. Well, thanks so much for your time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.